0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind.
2: They can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss.
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This
2: podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. John, I'm about to go on an Odyssey. Oh. This afternoon to Waterford. Right. And then from Waterford to Doolin. And then from Doolin to Inishman. Looking oh, for a golden fleece, maybe? Looking for the exactly <laughs> looking for three golden fleeces. Three golden fleeces. But it's so of my my Odyssey. So we've done Belfast, Dublin, Waterford, home of the Dacia. Yeah. A very, very do you know that Waterford was voted the best place to live in Ireland? Was it? Last year. By who? People from Waterford. <laughs> no, no, by a, apparently on a, on a, it was an Irish Times metric. Oh, right. Okay. The it's best a part to of the world. It is a lovely part of the world. And the city itself is lovely, right? Mm. Except for the fact that the entire key of Waterford, so you know it's a big key as so you come yeah. in, you go over the bridge and the, the city's kind of on the right. There's a beautiful key. Yeah. It's a car park. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, so basically the entire piece that looks over the river and the water.
2: Yeah, the waterfront, which is which is probably you know, the most beautiful and yeah. attractive part of
0: any city. Of any city, city yeah. yeah. You know, the Americans always say, I want to live by the water, yeah. right? Okay, it's a car park. Yeah, I know. And I was driving there and I was thinking, that's really, really weird because who has made that decision? And it's in a place because if you go outside Waterford, right, out to the city, and the city itself is really interesting and it's old and there's there's, you know, about 80 i think it's about 80,000 people in the city so it's got yeah. kind of a substantial enough hinterland and then of course the hinterland itself is beautiful
2: yes it is yeah you know
0: if you drive out for,
2: towards cork but I don't it's cork. think it's a, it's a, a case of who decided that i mean that was the council must have decided no but that that was the style of of cities i mean we have our port in the uh, yeah. down on the waterfront in dublin which, which we shouldn't should, have yes we'll come back to that another yeah. day but that's the way cities were built
0: no, no, but, but I understand, but, but I'm just saying, what I'm saying is, is the bit on the wall where you should have cafes and bars and parks yes, and yeah, yeah. anything is a car park. Like, it's actually all cars, right? And it could be something, I think, quite beautiful. Anyway, I was just contemplating that as I was walking there. Right. And uh, so we have, yeah, we're going to and then we're going to go Osweil again. We are, indeed. With Anish <laughs> man. Have you got your running shoes on?
2: <laughs> I've got my hiking boots. Your brogy rihe. <laughs> Everyone can can righ
0: away, I'll go with shool. Well, if you go Ikshul, I tell you, there's a beautiful place in Inishman because the great thing about Inishman is that it's built from the same rock as the Cliffs of Moher. Yes, yeah, yeah. Except there are cliffs in Inishman where nobody sees you can go. There's not a sinner there. And you have the Atlantic coming in and they're extraordinary. The wildness of it There's all. a wildness and there's a mad thing, right? And I'll show it to you on Saturday, right? So, so John, when you're walking, something yeah. you will be really fascinated by is you'll see these huge, big boulders, granite boulders, like big, big rocks of granite in the middle of fields. And you think, what the hell are those things? Because they're completely inconsistent with the fact that the plateau is limestone, which makes the cliffs so lovely. Yes. Because it's soft and it, it breaks up and whatever. And what was happening was they were smashing the limestone, right, in order to create the rocks to build the walls, these very low walls, right?
2: Dry, dry stone walls. Dry stone amazing, walls. Amazing, okay? amazing, yeah.
0: But think about the effort that was going into it. And then they were using those walls. You know all this stuff because you know about Georgia. Yeah,
2: yeah. But, they used the walls to, to essentially protect the soil that is there because it's very thin soil. And with the wild, Atlantic gales coming in, it, it blows away. It would away. have blown the thing, right. Yeah. So the
0: stone walls were used to... To protect, protect that. the place. As well as to indicate who owned which field. Well, but yes, they were, yeah, yeah. But so what you'll see is the process whereby they smashed the limestone. It's so laborious. Okay, you can imagine smashing limestone all day, dropping this big granite yeah. onto <laughs> yeah, the stones. Yeah, yeah. Then the stones splinter. Then you got to pick them up. Then you've got to build the walls. So you can imagine the process. We're going to talk about economic growth, right? Yeah. We have no conception of how hard it was just to survive. you have never done a hard day's work in know, our lives. I know, but life. like, can you imagine like, So when you're on an Ishmael, yeah. just really notice it. It's yeah. got hundreds of miles of stone walls, all those stones, and they got the granite. Imagine what they did. The granite comes from Connemara. Mm. And they flew around those big mines around the 12 bends. And they must have rolled these boulders, or lifted them in some way, down to carrow or something like that, put them on a curragh, row them across, think about the effort, the effort. Because life was so fragile that they had to expend so much human muscle to protect tiny little fields. Yeah. And for those tiny little fields to grow potatoes or to graze, you know, sheep or cattle they probably wouldn't have that many cattle right
2: no they wouldn't have had cattle at all they would have a few sheep maybe a few, maybe a, few a, a few goats yeah but it was so exposed that it was such a meagre return yeah. on it. So, so when, when we use the phrase, the juice ain't worth the squeeze, well, man, the <laughs> squeeze was enormous. Was
0: enormous. To get a tiny bit of juice out of the land. So if you look at that, and that's what I found fascinating with my economics head on, you know, when I'm walking through places like the Aran Islands, mm. what I'm thinking about is how much effort went in just to live. Yeah, right? yeah, because yeah, if Because if the soil went... These people starved. Yeah, well, that,
2: that's exactly. They it. had fish.
0: Yeah. And what you notice is still the Aran Islanders are, you know, really big and big fishermen. Yeah. They always claim the Connemara's fellas can't fish. <laughs> that's what they say to me. Those fellas over there they can't fish at all. Right? Okay. But it's that's fascinating. And on, on your walk now this weekend. I will. I'm looking cons- forward to. It. Conceive, really looking forward to. Conceive it. of the effort that went in. And that's what we're going to talk about today, which is economic growth. Right? Because you think about those people who lived, all of our great, great, great grandparents, right? Yeah. Go back, right? Lived in a country of subsistent farmers. Their subsistence meaning they just existed, right? And every single year was dominated by the harvest. Yeah. And trying, as you say, to just make sure that little meagre bit of land creates a meagre bit of food to prevent us starving. Yeah. And this is way before the famine. And then, of course, what happened in the famine is the great Malthusian disaster, where you get more and more people. So the history of the potato, there's a very lots of very interesting books about the potato, right? And obviously it comes from Latin America. Mm. And it comes over, and what the potato does, you see an extraordinary correlation between the arrival of the potato in Europe and explosion of the population in subsequent years. Oh, right. Because the okay. potato could be grown in all sorts of inclement areas, particularly in northwestern Europe, right? Yeah. Okay, where it's wet, the soil is heavy. So for thousands of years, northern Europe starved every year, right? And the reason northern European population was always quite low was because of the fact that the ground was very, very difficult to till. Yes. So the potato arrives and it is a food which is cheap, which proliferates and actually has enough nutrients in it for people to survive. Yeah, yeah. So what you see in Ireland, your man Walter Raleigh, I think he brought the potatoes. Yes, he did. In, Col- in Yarl, wasn't it? He- was it Yall he came into? He was in Yall. I think he was in Yall. Now maybe historians will prove us. Yeah, right, yeah. But so he comes in. The potatoes produce a return from the land that allows more and more people to survive, and as more and more people survive. The population grows exponentially. Yeah, because you got four kids, you got five kids. They survive, right? And then ultimately, that population grows rapidly. But in the case of Ireland, what we did was the population grew rapidly meant more and more and more people surviving on less and less and less land. Yeah. So at every stage as the population grew, the situation became more precarious. And then, of course, you get the blight. So the history- yeah, but it's
2: all and, and it's also the the. Reliance on a monoculture of yes. of spuds, yeah, and that's what's so dangerous, by the way, about having you know uh, monocultures of of these crops in Midwest America, in Ukraine, in Russia, all that. You know, the, what is it? The the Russia and Ukraine supply a third of the world's wheat, isn't it? Wheat or whatever it is. Could you imagine if there was a wheat blight of some
0: sort? That wipes out that... Or a war, as we're having now. Or a war. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. That's what yeah. I but was it's going, going same idea. Idea. yeah. And the interesting thing is we're going to talk about... See what you did there? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We're talking about economic growth. And the essential element of economic growth is diversity. Now, this is interesting. Yeah. Not monocultures, diversity. So we're going to fly from the wilds of Inishman, where you and I will be there, okay? Mm-hmm. We're going to go to the States, because the idea is this week the IMF... Came out with, you know, economic growth's forecast to slow down, maybe a recession next week. And lots of people say, what causes the economy to grow? Yes. Like, that's the big question of economics, right? And the echo of the famine here is what happens when you become catastrophically dependent. And as you said, one or two products. And therefore, you become unbelievably fragile and susceptible to disaster. Let's have a look and see what makes economies grow. But let's talk to somebody who doesn't have to Google things, okay? (laughs) To our friend Mark Blythe over in Brown University because he's been thinking about economic growth for quite some time. simple minds, for you there that's uh, <laughs> that's the sound of mark Blythe, famous political analyst economist political scientist Hello. and now drummer when did you yes, learn yes exactly
1: when did you learn the drums we mon that was my pandemic lockdown excuse that's fantastic so i used to be a funk bass player so i can like rip the shit I'm out of this thing loving the funk,
0: funk bass, bass, bass player <laughs> i'm yeah getting... so i was a,
1: i was a funk bass player for years and years so should, I, should we be calling you Booty Blyde? Uh, I, I like to think of myself as the Pound Stretcher March King.
0: <laughs> you can be, I can just see you as a member of Odyssey or some sort of funk sort of.
1: Oh, death, late, oh my God, late, that would be heaven.
0: Late 70s
1: funk yeah, and Wind and Fire. Yeah. Literally being the, being the bass player in Earth, Wind and Fire would be like the coolest gig in the world. Oh, John,
0: we've got to get some Earth, Wind and Fire going on this podcast. Absolutely. Okay, you could be like Bernard. Oh, yeah, Do you I mean, remember definitely. Bernard, who was uh, Niall Rogers' mate in... Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Or Bootsy Any- Collins was the best. Bootsy Collins was an amazing bass player. Who yeah, would- Bootsy,
1: Bootsy was incredible. Who no doubt did Bootsy about that. play with? Parliament.
0: Look at you two nerding out on bass players of our time. I, right. I'll go for I'll go for Bruce Foxton myself.
1: <laughs> a know. very different style, but he was an absolutely excellent player. I, I mean, definitely. I mean, it's like Peter Hook from New was a New Order as well. Yeah. I mean, what a bass player! But with a plectrum. I mean, a very different style. And Paul but, McCartney uh, was a pretty know.
2: good bass player too.
1: Well, John Entwistle oh, was was incredible actually because he, yeah, he
2: yeah because he was also playing with a very difficult drummer, a very brilliant but difficult drummer Keith Moon. Keith Moon, difficult in many many yeah. ways. but the, but they really complemented each other because they were they were both really busy players. Like yeah, John Entwistle was right. a busy bass player, but he was great.
0: Listen, how are you, mate? It's really good, good to hear you. Always, always yes. a pleasure. Always a pleasure, and we we'll yes, see you at live and
1: dangerous. Oh, I see what you did there, Mike. Very which, is, good. which is an album by another
0: fantastic bass player, <laughs> Live and Dangerous Thin Lizzy.
1: Oh, yeah. That, funnily enough, I was in the gym the other day and they were playing Jailbreak. And I was like, that song never gets old. Jailbreak. Oh, it's superb.
0: Jailbreak.
1: Tonight there's going to be a Jailbreak. It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, we, we could have an homage to Philo. An homage to Phil <laughs> in it. one of the finest Absolutely. other bass players. So, listen, Mark, let us talk yes, about. serious now. Yeah, no, 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 serious. Look, look, first off, I'll see you in the flesh and dorky in a couple of weeks' time. We'll be actually announcing that lineup quite soon. So, it'll be really lots of good speakers, lots of good chat, lots of good fun. I want to talk to you about something that basically has bedeviled economics for the last two or three hundred years, which is up until about three hundred years ago, economies didn't really grow that much. And then about three hundred years ago, Economies start to take off almost in a vertical pattern. If you'd looked at it on a graph, the question is why, how do economies grow? What does it take? You've been thinking all about this.
1: I have indeed. I'm going to try and write a book about this in about two years time. So for me to write a book, I need to do about two years of research. And one of the ways that you start to do research is you do a class. You put together a syllabus of all the stuff you think you should read, and you get people to help you read along. And that's what I'm doing now. So I'm at the end of the story, in a sense, which is the class is called From Growth to the Green Transition. I discovered reading a book about the OECD, uh, an organization based in Paris that basically is a kind of like think tank for finance ministries. And in 1961, the Kennedy administration organized a conference at the OECD where they were trying to convince European finance ministers of the the benefits of and the possibility of continued economic growth. As late as 1961, the Europeans in particular were deeply skeptical that you could have continually growing economies. This was just not part of the lingua franca, not just of economics, but more importantly of politics. It just wasn't thought to be possible. The whole idea coming out of World War II was to rebuild back to the standards, hopefully, of the 30s. The idea that you would then move forward at the rapid clip that we did and put people on the moon and everyone could fly in transatlantic planes, that was a fantasy. There was no way that that was the case. And yet, that happened. And the really interesting thing is, you go through this decade of the 1960s, the fastest period of growth that Europe had Uh, averaging 9% a year, astonishing rates of growth. And then in 1970, you get the birth of the environmental movement. You get this report that comes out from the Club of Rome, this weird group, called the Limits to Growth. And even the OECD itself starts to basically question the very foundations of growth and the sustainability of growth. Then you have the kind of neoliberal period we've lived in for the past 40 years where all of those concerns were just nailed shut in a box and buried deep in the ground and nobody was allowed to talk about it, right? And then eventually, you know, as, as, as Macmillan said, events, dear boy, events, right? The climate crisis, the juxtaposition of all these different forces come together and those same concerns come right back out. So yeah, growth, it's all about growth, isn't it?
0: So tell us, so Mark, every single society wants to grow, get richer, provide more opportunities. This is a metric that the vast majority of economists stroke policymakers subscribe to right now. I'm going to come on to the idea of going to a lower degrowth, maybe steady state economy to be consistent with the environment in a couple of minutes. But first, what I want to ask you is, how do, how do economies grow?
1: There's lots of different theories about this. There's a new one that just came out. It's a really nice readable book by a colleague of mine Brown. The book is called The Journey of Humanity by Oded Gador. And it's he's been working on this forever, right? I mean, it's long, long run growth. and for him, essentially, it's about the development of human capital, that is to say knowledge, right? Once you invest in knowledge as a society and you have enough of a surplus through the agricultural revolution, you get past the old sort of Malthusian trap of population versus food, and then you can get into a period whereby you can use technologies to accelerate growth. That's kind of in a sense the standard model and there's not a lot wrong with it as a story. The question is, though, and and this is the important part for the current moment, even if that's a general theory, right, by which we mean it explains the past, and it can hopefully explain the future, and it certainly explains how we got here, do the conditions of the world allow that to keep going? Is it really just a case of technology and more knowledge, a shift in demography. As countries get richer, they tend to have less kids, so the population gets more sustainable. And that way you can get to a kind of high-level, steady state of growth. That would be a nice world, and that's the world that Oded kind of sees in his book. There are other people that take very different views on that. To go back to the economic side of it, for a long time, economics really didn't care about growth, which is hard to fathom these days. That is hard to fathom. I mean, if you think about, you know, the classical economic theories of like Marx and Ricardo and this sort of stuff, they all believe that basically there's some version of a kind of a theory of a common rate of profits that essentially machines in competition compete profits away to this very, very low rate. And the only way to escape that is to go to new markets. That's Ricardo. And Marx takes Ricardo's framework and essentially turns this into a mechanism whereby col- capitalism collapses in on itself. So, if there was a 19th century growth story, it was a pretty pessimistic one. And in the 20th century, as I was alluding to at the start, we didn't even really start thinking in these terms until the 1960s. The sort of the seminal economic work is a guy called Bob Solo. And Bob comes along and basically says, you know, at the end of the day, you've got population, doesn't vary much. And you have a capital stock, a certain amount of stuff you make things with. And that's kind of the two ingredients you've got. And if you, how do you get from sort of one, pe- one level of growth to another? It seems to be outside of those parameters, right? It's exogenous, as economists say. And that's when technology comes in. And technology seems to be basically 70% of the explanation technology plus how you organize things. And then that gets molded into a thing called total factor productivity. So it's, it's a bunch of sort of special theories. Yeah, uh, Oded's book is an attempt to do the general theory of this, but really, you know, the funny thing about it is David, when you the more you get into this, the more you realise you're talking about different things. So I'll give you an example. When we talk about growth, what's the metric that pops into your head? What's the, what, GDP, how would you measure GDP, growth? GDP. GDP. Right. Now here's the thing about GDP. Every politician wants it, but GDP is an average. Right. You talk about you know the average income in the United States, the average income in Ireland, etc. Right. And what matters, if if you've got a kind of symmetrical distribution of income and wealth, then GDP is a kind of meaningful figure. But if you have, as you have in the United States and other places, an incredibly skewed Yes. the distribution of income and wealth, then that average is completely misleading. What you should be looking at is the median. The difference between the median and the average is huge because the tail's getting dragged up because the rich people at the top are pushing the average, Now, explain right? to
0: me the difference so, between the median and the average and explain the, the notion of the tail, which means right. many things to many yeah. people.
1: Well, in, Indeed, it does. So imagine that you've got the situation, the classic situation of 100 people in a bar, right? Yep. And everybody's average income's fifty grand. We're just gonna call it. That. It's a pretty rich bar. It's a nice bar, right? Yep. It's a wine bar. And in comes Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates walks into a bar and instantly, right? On average, everybody is a millionaire, if not a billionaire, right? (laughs) Simply because if you add his wealth into it, that skews it, that drags the tail up so much, right? But if you were to basically line everybody up and then count from the first person to the 50th person or the 51st person, given there's now 101 people in the bar, what would be the income at that level? What's the income at the 50th uh, halfway through? And that would be vastly different because you haven't got the bill yet. Yeah. Right. that's how to think about that. So when you've got very, very unequal societies, metrics like GDP don't make any sense. I mean, one way to think about you know Trumpism and and uh, the North revolt against Labour and Brexit and all the stuff we've been dealing with is large chunks of these societies haven't, despite what they read in the paper every day and get told by the politi- political classes, they haven't experienced any growth in years, if not decades. Yeah. No, absolutely.
0: Right. And in right. fact, they've gone the other so, way.
1: They've gone the other way. So, meanwhile, you're being told by the political classes, well, the economy's never been so good. It's great, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, maybe in London, maybe yep. in Dublin, but not out in the sticks. That's, yep. been, that's, that's been degrowth and the really bad version of it. So, my point being, you know, when you start to talk about growth, we are actually talking about massively different things sometimes.
0: And tell me, look, what is the role of money in all this? Not as much as people think.
1: I mean, if you have a shortage of demand and you stick money into an economy, then things will pick up. Employment will pick up. Prices and wages will pick up. And if you hit capacity constraints, as we are at the moment because of a pandemic and then a war screwing up global supply chains, because it was pretty insane to think that the whole planet could do just-in-time supply from the other side of the planet for everything that they need. Then you will run up against those capacity constraints. And if you keep spending money, you get inflation, right? So that's a very standard sort of story there, right? You've got, in that classic sense, too much money chasing too few goods. So the standard, if you will, classical or neoclassical model isn't wrong there. Now, before all my MMT friends jump down my throat here, that's modern monetary theory, there's also a very important role for money in this in in lots of different ways. If we think about it in a global sense, right, let's think about the conflict that's going on just now, the, the, the war in Ukraine. What is it the United States has done? It's it's sanctioned the Russian Central Bank. It said, you may have $300 billion in dollar reserves, but you're not getting them. Because we make the dollar, and you don't. And anybody who spends money on anything globally has to clear through dollars. What does that mean? It means that the banking circuits, all the, they all work in dollars. So whatever currency you earn and you change it into dollars. That means it has to go through the United States banking system in some way, shape, or form. And that's what makes the US a superpower. It's not the aircraft carriers, it's that. So money is incredibly important at different levels.
0: It's the power of money is actually what the real power of the United States is.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is, which is why sort of the contentious debates over the future of the dollar are so important. If you really can substitute out of the dollar, if you're Russia or if you're China, then you directly challenge American power in a way that simply having a having a punch up with them would never do.
0: Let's go back to growth, right? Let's go back to growth. Sure. And, because, you know, this economy here grew dramatically quickly. And I think you're absolutely right. It didn't in any way, drag up all boats. But it it dragged up many. It actually dragged up many. And one of the best places to look at that, I presume, is the rate of unemployment, that sort of emigration, these sort of issues, right? Yes. How come small countries grew quicker than big countries in the last 20 years?
1: Ah, that's a great question. A lot of it has to do with specialisation, and some of it has to do with luck. So if you think about let's think about two small countries in a global sense that have grown very, very well, one rather than the other. So let's take Australia. Australia hasn't had a recession in 35 years. Now, what is Australia's business model? Australia, or as we call them, growth models, the the underlying growth model, the bit of the economy you tickle to make GDP happen, if you want to be crude about it, is essentially the mining sector, right? Mining, gas, all the rest of it. Western Australia is a giant open-cast mine that gets dug up and sold to China. China then takes the dollars it earns from selling stuff to Walmart and hands it back to the Australians. The Australians then remit that into giant housing bubbles on the west coast of their economies in the four big cities, and they rinse and repeat for 30 years. Now, that's been an incredible growth story, but it also means they have practically no domestic industry, an overvalued currency, and they're completely reliant on China continuing to buy their stuff.
0: It's like like, Australia is like Russia with Aussie rules.
1: You got it. That's exactly it. I like to describe it this way. It's a seriously bad carbon emitter with a first-class marketing department. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's actually nice.
0: that's a really good way of putting it.
1: Now, now here's the thing. Right next door to that's where my brother lives, which is New Zealand. Now, New Zealand's been the growth laggard in this story, right? They really haven't grown as fast. They're not nearly as rich in GDP per capita, all the rest of it. Yeah, but I mean, outside of Auckland, they don't really have housing bowels It's one of the few places where you don't even have to have a college degree to still have a, a decent life. It's a very pleasant place. Now, as China basically moves away from a growth model based upon essentially adding GDP by building stuff, you're going to need less Australia. What you also need to do is clean up your environment and clean up your food chain. So then you turn your attention to where? New Zealand. What does New Zealand do? It does honey. It does milk. It does beef. It does lamb. It does all the stuff that China needs now it's getting richer. So guess which country I would bet on? I would switch out of, I'd go short Australia and go long New Zealand, all things considered. So it's those types of global dynamics that, that add to growth. Think about Ireland in this respect. Right, there's no doubt about the fact that basically Ireland being a, a, an open and welcoming and democratic and, rel- and stable society helps foreign investors have confidence and put their cash here. It's also true that the tax rate helped, but that's not even the main story. It's the fact that where you are, it's the fact that you are an English-speaking entrepot, a little entry pot, entry port mm-hmm. for the EU for American multinationals. And those multinationals found that you're not just good as a brass you've also got skilled labour and they've put real jobs down there and that's, that's what happened to Ireland so is that a skill story? absolutely is it also a luck story? yeah is it a geography story? yeah it's all of the above but the important thing is the drivers to all this aren't local they're global everybody's growth depends on everybody else so if you
0: believe that one of the consequences of the war in Ukraine is going to be a recalibration of the globe where the americans this is one this is one version of events right mm-hmm. where the americans basically say look you're either with us or against us right where do you, where where are you and american corporations and lots and lots of european corporations will no longer invest in in countries with very very with poor human rights records with poor autocratic records etc right supply chains by definition may well contract to what mm-hmm. what happens then so we've got the globalised story, and we know that Ireland did well out of that. You know, so too did Denmark, so too did Finland. A lot of countries did quite well. What happens when that story, that big picture, changes globally?
1: So that's a very interesting one, because I would pitch that a slightly different way. I think that what happens is that you have to look at American domestic politics here. I think Joe Manchin is the bellwether here in the basically build back better and the green transition and all this stuff is completely dead in the water in America, I think, for the next 10 years. The Democrats, as usual, have handed, handed the Republicans a kind of culture war bomb that they're endlessly happy to play with. And they're going to win in 22, in the midterms, in 24. And then there's going to be a bonfire of ESG regulations, and there'll be a, the one last great giant carbon bubble. They'll also have a very different foreign policy. I can see the the whole sort of anti Russia thing really splitting the Republicans, and if they're in power, this going to be suddenly backpedalled. In that world, what I think you see is much closer cooperation between the EU and China over the long term. Why is that? Because both of them understand the importance of green uh, green transition, decarbonization, and also, and particularly for China having the technology and technological edge to basically lead in those sectors, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's carbon capture and storage, whether whatever the technologies happen to be. And the Europeans and the Chinese have already been working very well in these areas together for the past 30 years. And that's the one that I think is actually going to continue. So in terms of the supply chains, I mean, I think that we're in a particular moment where it's the last gasp of kind of American giant multilateralism and let's get the sort of transatlantic band back together. As soon as the republicans come back in, I think this is over.
0: And you don't think? I just got to clear that you don't think that that sort of pro-Troopin, sorry, that pro-Putin Russian fringe element in the republic, which is anti-American, it's anti-patriotic, it's anti-everything the Republicans should stand for. You don't think that's going to melt away as as Putin reveals more of himself?
1: it depends how the war goes and how long it lasts and the one thing we know is that wars always last longer than people anticipate so that could certainly change the change the game but you know the republicans under trump to me were fascinating because they were almost like a 19th century party they had two policies one was disengagement yeah. and the other one was the tariff i mean that's the 19th century republican party and if you think about where they are yes they may sort of backpedal on overt support for putin but let's remember what Trump wanted to do. Trump wanted to essentially privatize NATO. If the poles are willing to pay for American defense, we'll do a bilateral deal and we'll put troops there. If the Bulgarians are willing to pay, great. If the Germans want to buy Russian gas, why the hell are we backing up their defense budget? And I don't see that changing. Now the Germans have said they're going to change. We'll see. But anyway, the point about global supply chains—we're getting off track, right? The point about no, supply good, chains. But
0: it's good stuff. It's good stuff.
1: Yeah. But the point about supply chains, I'd put it this way, what happens is if you bring these things home, you shorten them. And what does that mean? It means that you're going to do a lot more automation. So all the automation that we've been hearing about for the past decade that didn't happen or happened in places you didn't notice it, like global supply chains, it's going to come home. And that comes if you're going to make more stuff at home, you're going to do that with relatively expensive labor in some countries. And the way that you deal with that is by huge amounts of automation. Now does that necessarily kill jobs? In one version of the story, it does. But there's other versions of the story that it doesn't. Because if you automate a process, and you really boost your profit margins and lower your costs, then you expand output, that creates more jobs rather than less. So it's going to vary sector by sector. But I would say that sort of COVID was the nudge, inflation was the shove, and if this war continues and goes badly, that's going to be what's going to really force a reshoring of supply chains. But what that's going to do is, particularly manufacturing, which these days is a very small part of the economies that we inhabit, small part of the British economy, small part of the the Irish economy, you know, that's going to be automated much more.
0: Mark, just before you go, so what about the argument, right, which is that all this growth is still, as we speak, based largely on burning bits of dead things. Yes, Burning dead stuff, right? And burning dead stuff heats up the world and growth is inconsistent with hitting carbon targets.
1: So this is one of these statements that I say, it's not wrong, but it's not wholly right. Go for it. So here's what I mean by that. The correlation between basically energy intensity per capita And growth is astonishingly strong, right? I mean, basically it's like a straight line up the middle of the graph, right? So the more that you burn, the richer you are, right? And the two of them go together. Remember that's a correlative relationship. It's not necessarily causal. Now, there's a hopeful version of the story that says the following, and this is very much Eric Lorrigan and Corinne Sawyer's new book, Supercharge Me, right? If 70% of what we do is electricity, we just need to basically have a grid that burns less dead stuff. And then you can have the inputs, and you can still have that growth. And if that correlation is causal, then great, you can still have growth. That's if you will you substitute out carbon pollution for carbon absorbing, or carbon neutral, yeah. or even carbon positive, right? Now, there's another version of the story that says, that's nah, bollocks, that's not going to happen. Because even if the technology is true, and this is an argument from a guy called Brett Christopher, who makes this argument, it's a very compelling argument, that you're forgetting something. Capitalism, at the end of the day, is about profit. And apparently, there's a kind of reverse Moore's law becoming apparent in renewables. And here's what I mean by that: you know how Moore's law is this thing about the capacity of a chip doubling every eighteen months, right? So there's apparently there's one that's showing up in the data with renewables that is every time you double the scale, right, the size, the you know the 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 megawattage, the square footage, the area of a renewable, the price drops thirty percent. Wow! So with China, yeah, so China last year put out more wind than the rest of the world has. Now, that's scale. right? So what does that mean? It means that the price of these things are going down. So the hopeful reading on this goes, great, this is why oil and gas and coal become uncompetitive. You switch in, and that's it. And Brett comes along and says, yeah, but hang on a minute, capitalism is about profit. What you're doing when you do that is you're basically creating free electricity. If you do that, then profit models of all of those sectors die. Saudi dies, Russia dies, the National Oil Company of Venezuela dies, all these things that basically hold large chunks of capitalist economies together are just out of, they're, they're done, right? Because, because energy is
0: free, because electricity is free.
1: Because energy is effectively free, right? Okay. So, so, the, so they don't have anything to do. They're going to fight that tooth and nail because that's how they make money in this world. That brings us back to the growth story. So the only way around that is if, you basically, if you're going to make electricity effectively free, you need to run it as a kind of, if you will, global public utility. Mm, it's hard to see how you're going to get individual nation states to line up for this when they've got some of the most profitable sectors in their economy kicking and screaming the other way. So to bring it home, it's an open question at this point. I don't happen to think that technically that growth is incompatible with the planet so long as it's not carbon intensive. The question is, can you reduce the carbon intensity? If you reduce the carbon intensity sufficiently, can you do that without causing a social or economic rupture in terms of the way that capitalism is organised on a fundamental level? And that's when it gets into sci-fi. I don't know how to even begin to answer those questions.
0: (laughs) Mark Blythe, as always, ending with sci-fi, beginning with late 1970s drum and bass movements where how do we how, did we, how did we I, do how we manage to do that how do we manage to do that a thing of beauty
1: I, I don't know but I will continue to try
0: Mark listen that was fantastic stuff thanks a million All take right. care man you cheers. cheers Mark
1: bye bye
2: Bootsy Bly there. <laughs> I can imagine crazy.
0: him in a... In a man, we should man get he said a, he's funk band
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's platforms and all the rest. We should get a band together. But actually, what I thought was really interesting, and you know, obviously it stands to reason, is this correlation between energy use and economic growth. So the more energy you use, yeah. the, there should be more... The economic, more you burn,
0: the more economic yeah, growth. Yeah. But
2: we're running out of stuff to burn, So growth is going to slow down. So we need to find a new energy source in order to keep that growth going. And that's the challenge of of the ages.
0: And it is is the challenge. And you're absolutely right to say it's the challenge of the ages. Because if you look at human history from the very, very first time we left Africa, out of Africa, East Africa, up until about 1750 or 60, Mm. nothing happens the economy doesn't grow almost at all. And it's called the Malthusian trap. That basically we talk about the famine, right? That economic incomes, real incomes, were a function of food and the harvest. And sometimes the harvest was good and people had slightly more kids, but almost invariably you had failures. You were talking about monoculture, you had failures of crops. And human income did nothing for 100,000 years. And then it's only like a blink of the eye. 250 years ago, income takes Whoosh. off. Whoosh, right? right? Yeah. So they call it the hockey stick in, in, in things, you Yeah. Know, right? So you get nothing and then it goes almost vertical. And it happens first in Britain, then in Western Europe, then yeah. in the United States, and then gradually that process continues. Spreads, yeah. But at the core, as you said, was not exclusively, but quite obviously, was fossil fuels. Was that idea of a new source of energy? Mm. And right now we're at the end of that game. We're at the end of a 250 year cycle because we can no longer burn fossil yeah. fuels. A, because they're running out. We had a good run of it. We had a good run. And B, but what, what is interesting is that unless we find a new renewable form of energy, do you ever remember the vista of Mad Max? I do, yeah. Of a dystopian yeah, yeah, yeah. world running out of petrol.
2: Yeah, and Mel, great movies. Actually. Mel
0: Gibson and his crazy thing, right? Yeah. But that dystopia faces the 7 billion people in the world unless we find renewable energy. That's the key. Like You know, it's the renewable energy discussion isn't like some sort of greenwashing of morality or some sort of greenwashing of e- economics. It's elemental. And the 250-year run we've had, yeah. there's no guarantee that will remain the case. Because if we run out of energy, we go right back to primitive world. Yeah. So we need to find renewable energy. Otherwise, And fast. Otherwise, you can have your best Mel Gibson. (laughs) You'll be in one of those crazy trucks in the desert. (laughs) John Davis as Mad Max 7. I can see it now. Talk to you next week. While you're there now, I hope you're still enjoying this malarkey, because John and I are certainly enjoying it. Thank you very, very much to our Patreons. And if you're not a Patreon and you feel like supporting us and you fancy all sorts of exclusive goodies, just go to patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.